No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, Coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So feel free to call in at 888-627-6008 if you have a question, or you can Skype your questions to BBS Radio. And tonight we... We have a, a, a great guest, uh, former uh, attorney general for the District of Columbia, uh, uh, Irv Nathan, who was appointed uh, in 2011 in his role as, as attorney general. He supervised civil litigation and appeals on behalf of the city, as well as juvenile and misdemeanor prosecutions. Uh, he's also, prior to Prior to becoming attorney general, he was uh, he served as general counsel in the United States House of Representatives. He also served as principal associate deputy attorney general at the U.S. Department of Justice and deputy assistant attorney general for enforcement in the criminal division, uh, senior counsel for the U.S. House of Representatives Judiciary Committee and special minority counsel for the Senate Intelligence Committee. For more than 30 years, uh, Irv has practiced uh, law with Arnold and Porter, one of the more most respected law firms in the city. So thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, Irv, it's, it's great to have you. And let me just add to that, that I've had a, a office in the Wilson building for more than 15 years now, and I've never heard anybody say anything but good things about you, including that you're just a wonderfully nice guy. So I really thanks appreciate for, that. Thanks so much. Well, I'm delighted well, to be here. And you know what? It's so true, you know, and and that's really an accolade in, in D.C. politics to have <laughs> nobody say something mean, you know, because uh, uh, I've heard something mean about everybody. But but it's you. an accolade in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, to mitigate it, I have to say I've never run for any office. And so I've never had an adversary. Every one of my offices has been appointed. And uh, so therefore. I haven't uh, created, uh, at least I hope not, any enemies. But appointments well, that, that, unto themselves. Yeah, and, and, and they have their own politics too, and it's not easy. So you're, it's it's an amazing accolade. And, and and you know what? It just shows how smart you are that you've never run for uh, <laughs> an office. Can we start? Can we start because this was a historic week uh, in Washington, right? With the uh, appointment of or the confirmation of uh, Justice Brown Jackson 
to the Supreme Court is the first African-American woman. And we know that that uh, you served uh, uh, along with her on a task force and right. um, and, and that she's uh, been on the D.C. Uh, appellate court. So this is a lady, you know, tell us about her. Tell what what. What aren't they telling us about her that, that you would like to say? Well, actually, uh, I, I do know her very well. And, uh, in fact, uh, I was asked by the American Bar Association to um, comment on her uh, qualifications. And I gave her the highest uh, grades uh, possible. First of all, she is incredibly intelligent. Uh, the matter I worked with her on was for the uh, Council for Court Excellence, which I have uh, chaired in the past, and this was a project when she was a district court judge in the District of Columbia to improve the quality of jury service to make it more palatable for um, residents of the district to serve on juries um, because, you know, we don't have that great a population and people are repeatedly uh, called to serve for jury service. And obviously some people are not happy with it, although it's a very important public service to serve on a jury is really part of our democracy. And uh, mm -hmm. she was just a fantastic uh, co-leader of this uh, enterprise. In addition to being a brilliant uh, jurist, she is one of the nicest people that you've ever, you ever want to meet. She is really, everything you saw at the hearing, being patient and being kind and uh, uh, you know, listening carefully and being very uh, thoughtful in her responses. That's the way she is. And uh, this is a fantastic appointment. And, of course, I was very disappointed that the Republicans in the Senate did not treat her with the respect that she has earned uh, with her uh, two degrees from Harvard and uh, her um, judicial service and, of course, her prior service as a federal defender. I think she's going to be a wonderful addition to the Supreme Court, and uh, I just wish she had gotten more uh, votes from the Republican side. Well, and a t and a and by Supreme Court standards, she's a teenager, right? Fifty. She's 51. young. Fifty-one. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Brandeis was appointed to the Supreme Court when he was sixty, and he served for twenty-five years after that. Uh, at 51, uh, with a normal life expectancy, you could expect her to be on for almost three decades. And uh, so, you know, right now she's not going to change the balance on the court. It's a 6-3 uh, split in favor of the uh, conservatives. But over the course of time and uh, with uh, uh, proper election results, uh, that, that could change. And uh, so in the meantime, I think she'll be writing uh, dissents in uh, significant matters, but ultimately I think uh, she'll be able to persuade people to come to her side of the philosophy. That's great. Marilia, do you have a question for our former um, attorney yeah, general? It is, it's sort of along those lines. I have a lot of questions, but let me just ask, since we're, we, we sort of touched a little bit, a little bit upon the politics. Um, what has happened to the Hatch Act? I saw that you had something to do with it in your brilliant career. Um, it seems to me, I worked as a Schedule A, a political appointee into administrations, and we, we quaked in our in our shoes if 
you know, if we even approached something that seemed like a political event, because we had the fear of God put in us, you know, that you do not violate the Hatch Act. Well, it seems with the Trump people that the Hatch Act doesn't even exist anymore. It just didn't stick. So what's happened to it? Well, it's a very good point. Uh, just so your listeners know, the Hatch Act means that uh, civil servants, uh, appointees uh, in the uh, government, are not supposed to engage in political and partisan activities. And um, for all the time that I was in uh, government, where uh, in the executive branch uh, at the Department of Justice, which was both in the Carter and Clinton administrations, we adhered strictly to the Hatch Act, and uh, we did not engage in partisan political activities uh, while in uh, government service. Uh, and, and there is a special counsel who enforces the Hatch Act, and uh, the Hatch Act even uh, includes uh, criminal penalties and, uh, and civil uh, penalties and provides for some administrative um, restrictions that, uh, if, if there are violations. And um, during my time, there, there were some people who uh, violated it and, and were uh, sanctioned for it. During the Trump administration, uh, it was ignored, and uh, people uh, just laughed at it, and um, they, uh, they, there was uh, wholesale violations of it. And uh, uh, I guess because uh, the president appointed the person who was in charge of enforcing the Hatch Act, it simply wasn't enforced. And uh, mm -hmm. so there were um, uh, partisan uh, political activities uh, by, for example, um, the president's daughter and uh, son-in-law and uh, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, press agent, uh, the, the press um, head of the press office for the president, the press spokesman. And so uh, I find it uh, very, um, you know, awful that uh, it wasn't, first of all, adhered to, it wasn't obeyed, and secondly, it wasn't enforced. But I think, uh, you know, going forward in a um, administration that's committed to law and order, I think it, uh, it will be enforced uh, in this administration and hopefully in coming administrations of both political parties. Well, and you, you. you know, I worked on the card. The first thing I did at a college was work on the Carter campaign. And uh, they put the pure God, just like Marilia said, the pure God in us about approaching uh, uh, people that were uh, in the administration and, right. and what, we, what we could and could not ask them to do. Um, mm -hmm. uh, let, let, me, let me ask you, because I'm confused about this, and maybe you can give me some insight. I look to see what the final resolution of this has been, and it looks to me like we haven't resolved it. Yet, but for 28 years now, uh, Delegate Norton has pushed for control of the National Guard by the mayor. We, we, they, they put uh, a provision in the National Defense Defense Budget Act that would give us control. It went to the Senate, but do you know what's happened? Has it passed, Irv? Does does the mayor have control of the National Guard at this point? I I don't believe so, and I don't think that that has happened. And uh, that's an example of what I wrote about last week in the Washington Post. And in my view, um, first of all, I, I'm in favor of statehood for the district, and I'm glad that you have a national audience and people around the country should recognize that uh, the district 
uh, does not have uh, statehood, which it should, and that means it doesn't have uh, any senators and it doesn't have voting representation in the Congress. But um, in 1973, uh, before 1973, for 100 years, uh, the district didn't even have a mayor or an elected city council. It had uh, commissioners uh, that were appointed by the president, and um, it basically had no self-rule. But in 1973, the district got limited home rule, and now it has an elected mayor and an elected city council, which it had also had in the early 19th century, but uh, after the Civil War, lost that. But in the 1973 Act, which is called the Home Rule Act, which lays out uh, what powers the, the uh, city council and the mayor have, one of the limit, there are many limitations. It's a very restricted uh, home rule. It's not complete home rule. And one of the limitations in the Home Rule Act is that the National Guard remains with uh, the president in um, in uh, in the district unless there's a federal legislation. Everything can be changed. The Home Rule Act is a congressional act, and it can be modified by other congressional acts. So obviously there have been efforts uh, to um, change the uh, status of the National Guard and make it under the mayor as opposed to the president. And of course this issue became important on January 6th of this uh, uh, 1921, of, uh, 2021 uh, when uh, it required the, uh, the federal government to call out the uh, local National Guard and not the, uh, the mayor. So that that should be changed. That's one of the many things that ought to be changed to give more power to the District of Columbia. And there have been efforts, as you mentioned, but I don't think that it has ever been consummated. Uh, yeah, you know, not only the January 6th uh, riot, where we've heard much testimony uh, on behalf of people uh, that the National Guard was called in late because of that restriction uh, that, that, that's, you know, uh, well, that's one of the reasons makes the president, president. Uh, president Trump didn't call him in. Ultimately, yeah. he actually had to be called by the vice president. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, if you look at what happened on uh, January 6th, you can see that the tide was turned when the DC police metropolitan police oh, uh, were called in. So the national, there's no doubt that the national guard would have made a, uh, a big difference, I think, if it had been under the control of the mayor. And also, you know, we had that other lovely incident where uh, the president strolled out from the White House and, uh, you know, the guard was used to push uh, 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 peaceful protesters uh, back in Lafayette Square. So, uh, again, uh, if the mayor had been in control, it would have been a different, uh, it would have been a different uh, issue altogether. Let me let me also ask you about judges in the District of Columbia. This is a big problem for us since we're on we're, we're talking about legal stuff here. But um, it, the Senate has drug its feet on confirming judges for the District of Columbia, so we have a serious lack of of judges, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. What the, the problem is that um, under the the Home Rule Act and under the way um, the uh, 
judiciary is set up in the District of Columbia, the appointments of local judges in our Superior Court and in our Court of Appeals, uh, the appointments are made by the president, and presidents, including President Trump, have made good appointments uh, for uh, the local courts. But the confirmation process is in the Senate. The Senate is um, required to um, advise and consent and ultimately confirm the same way as it does with federal judges. And the problem is that, um, obviously, there's nobody in the Senate who comes from the District of Columbia. So the senators who are interested in national problems and, obviously, problems in their states, they pay very little attention to the judiciary in the District of Columbia. And this is true, basically, whether it's Republicans or Democrats uh, that are running the Judiciary Committee or the committee, it's the Government Operations Committee, uh, which reviews uh, the local uh, judges. So th there's been tremendous backlog in confirmation of judges who are appointed by the president because there's not a lot of attention paid. And this results in a, a poor system of justice for the residents of the District of Columbia because when there are vacancies, and there have been you know, dozens of vacancies in the uh, Superior Court and uh, several in the uh, Court of Appeals. These vacancies last for a very long time, and what that means is that uh, the judges who are on the bench uh, have additional burdens. They have uh, bigger caseloads. It takes more time to get cases to trial or to get uh, resolved, and therefore justice is delayed, and as we know, that, that could result in denial of justice. So uh, this is a very serious problem, and uh, it's another example of where if there were true home rule for the District of Columbia and the judges were appointed within the District of Columbia, say by the mayor, as is true in many states where the governor is appointed, and the confirmation could be in the city council rather than in the Senate, you would have uh, equal quality of the uh, the judges, but a much more expeditious confirmation process and therefore a full complement of uh, judges in our courts and therefore more justice, more expedited justice for our residents. Uh, yeah, let me point out that uh, Julie, our limited home rule, Julius Hobson, uh, former council member, used to call it home fool. Uh, because uh, it, it really does it really does limit uh, what we're we're able to do, uh, Marilia. Well, I was going to ask. I was going to go on to the topic of corruption, if you don't mind. Um, we've come a long way in D.C., but I know, and everybody knows, I suppose, that we still have corruption, and it corrodes government and democracy, and I think it hurts our chances of statehood as well. Um, as former attorney general and your incredibly diverse um, career in D.C., which is pretty amazing, you've run the gamut of everything. I don't know if there's anything else you could do, um, but um, you've got a great bird's eye view of, let's say, the politics and the law behind politics. And so uh, my question to you is how can we do better at preventing corruption? How do we shine a spotlight from within government and sort of beyond the vigilance of the media? 
Well, let me say, first of all, uh, corruption is not by any means limited to the District of Columbia. You know, I uh, when I was at the Department of Justice and I handled the abscam prosecutions, which were um, bribery uh, cases made against members of Congress who came from multiple uh, states and uh, from the, uh, the Senate. And, of course, I come from Maryland, and I was in the uh, courtroom, actually, when uh, Spiro Agnew uh, pled uh, no low. He, he had been the uh, governor of Maryland and then vice president and uh, was taking uh, payments. And we've had governors in other states, in Illinois and elsewhere, and, and we have now uh, in the uh, Michigan um, uh, legislature. So, you know, corruption is a problem throughout the country, um, mm -hmm. maybe throughout the world. So I, I wouldn't limit it to the District of Columbia. But within the District of Columbia, I think, um, you know, when I, when I was the um, Attorney General, um, I uh, uh, pursued a case against a city councilman. It was the first time that an Attorney General um, has uh, pursued a city councilman. This was Harry Thomas, Jr., who had taken uh, funds that were uh, intended for amateur sports in the District of Columbia and used it for his own personal expenses. It was quite inappropriate, and it led to... Uh, we brought a civil case to seek a return of the money and laid out all of what had happened, but it was the U.S. Attorney's Office that handled the criminal prosecution because that's the way that the Congress has divided up responsibility, which is that uh, the U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia handles all felony prosecutions, including mm -hmm. of local crimes, that the D.C. City Council creates the crimes, or uh, you know, uh, as well as the Congress, but the D.C. Council has authority to create uh, crimes, but uh, the prosecution of felonies, of uh, all felonies in the District of Columbia, are done by the federal uh, government. And so, obviously, the federal government handles uh, corruption uh, prosecutions. Which is true, by the way, in uh, other situations as well where federal crimes are involved. But the difference here is that local crimes are prosecuted by the federal U.S. attorney as opposed to the elected um, attorney general of the District of Columbia. I was not elected. I was the last appointed attorney general. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the current uh, attorney general, Carl Racine, and now we have an election coming up uh, in uh, uh, this year uh, for the new elected attorney general because Carl Racine is not uh, running again. Um, so w one way to uh, improve uh, the um, concern about corruption in the district is to give local authority to the locally elected um, prosecutors or uh, attorneys general to the right to pursue um, criminal allegations, corruption allegations against uh, local office holders. But at the same time, I think um, there, there's much that can be done. Uh, there, there is a, um, a board that uh, deals with uh, government regulations. That's the um, Board of Ethics and Government Accountability. Uh, there are... Um, inspectors general in various uh, agencies that uh, can look for uh, corruption. Obviously, the press is an important thing, uh, uh, shining light on problems that exist. So I, I think corruption is a serious problem. I think it's a problem in many jurisdictions across the country. 
I think mm -hmm. uh, vigilance uh, by the populace and by inspectors general, by the press, and of course by the prosecutors and the investigative agencies is all the way to handle it, to uh, bring it to light, to prosecute it to the full extent of the law, and to uh, eliminate it from our politics. It well, just seems like it's been eroded under Trump, like all these institutions that you named, all these things, IGs, everything that is in place to do that. I get the sense that it has been eroded and that people don't even expect any vigilance to take place, much less prosecution. Well, I, I think um, with the, um, the new administration and with uh, Merrick Garland in, at the mm -hmm. Department of Justice as the Attorney General, who was committed to a, a rule of law and uh, pursuit of these kinds of matters, I, I agree with you that over the four years that uh, Trump was there, uh, there was a diminution. I mean, he fired several um, mm -hmm. inspectors general after they came out with uh, negative reports about him or his appointees, and that's you know very unfortunate. That's contrary to the whole process of inspectors general. They're supposed to be independent, mm -hmm. and they're supposed to be able to call uh, attention to uh, problems and to refer matters for prosecution. And obviously, uh, they shouldn't be fired for doing their jobs. And yes, there, there was an undermining of it uh, during uh, those years, but I think there's a restoration in place, and I think... Uh, we can be confident uh, going forward, at least for the, the duration of the Biden administration. That's yeah, good to know. Well, uh, let, let me say, as a <clears throat> former resident of Newark, New Jersey, uh, yeah, there's corruption in, in, in other places besides Washington, D.C. I would also like to give a shout out to the voters of the District of Columbia, because the man you prosecuted, Harry Thomas, uh, for stealing money from the Little League, uh, just tried to run for city council and couldn't raise enough money to run. So then he was going to run to be part of our delegation and he couldn't get enough signatures to get on the ballot. So at least the voters are paying attention uh, because uh, I believe in repentance, but you shouldn't just be able to sit out for a term or two and, and then run again. Uh, but since you mentioned that you were the last appointed attorney general, uh, Sharon from Pennsylvania just uh, Skyped in a question. Why didn't you run for to be the first elected attorney general? Well, to, to be candid, I don't think I'm a, uh, an attractive uh, public official. I, I don't really um, make great stump speeches and things uh, like that. And uh, I had served, uh, you know, four years, and it, it uh, was a very uh, heavy load to uh, to deal with it. I did recruit someone that I thought was um, appropriate for the elected attorney general uh, position, and that was Carl Racine. And I think my judgment has been vindicated. He's uh, served for two terms, and I think he's done an excellent uh, job. So um, it, it just wasn't uh, my... Um, especially to be running for election, and um, uh, so I, I, I declined to uh, take that opportunity. Well, I hate to disagree with you, but I think you'd make a great candidate, and I think you were right about Carrie's scene, and he really has pushed the envelope. Has yeah, he's done a very good job. Or, yeah, and, 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 you know, I know that most recently he's, besides filing an emollient suit against the president, which uh, really didn't go anywhere, but 
but you know, for people, for our listeners, there's a clause of the constitution that says you can't benefit from your public office. And, and Carl went after uh, the, the president for doing exactly that. He's included some people from uh, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys in the January 6th uh, uprising. He's suing them. And he's also got a suit that Marilli and I don't, I don't think we understand, right? Where he's <laughs> suing uh, Grubhub. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that we get that one, but he really has pushed the envelope. Yeah. On, on the emoluments uh, case, when it says that you can't take uh, emoluments from, or you can't take additional profits uh, from foreign governments and others uh, when you're uh, the president, uh, he, he did get a very good decision from Judge Massetti in the district court in Maryland. He, he brought that with Brian Frosch, the um, excellent attorney general in Maryland, who also now has retired or is not running again for re-election. And so th- they got a very good decision in the district court. Uh, it then got um, set aside in a, with a conservative panel in the Fourth Circuit, but the but it was remanded to the district court, and that um, decision is still on the books. The one that Judge Massetti wrote, and defining emoluments as taking uh, these kinds of payments at the hotel that uh, Trump owned from foreign dignitaries that went into based the profits went into his uh, pockets. So I, th- I think uh, he did establish a good precedent there even though they didn't get a good result in this particular uh, case. But but it was a, a good effort on their part and uh, worthwhile to do. And, and I would also point out, whereas you were appointed by the mayor, uh, Carl and our current mayor don't seem to don't don't seem to be on the same page. He's actually uh, endorsed another candidate uh, in the upcoming election, and and he certainly is has been at odds with the mayor at, at points. So yeah, I, you know, I think I, that's unfortunate, and of course that's the um, result of um, a perception, uh, probably by the mayor, that. Um, the attorney general would be a candidate for mayor and that they could be um, political rivals somewhere down the line. I think that's unfortunate, and I think um, it would be helpful if the candidate for attorney general is not perceived as a candidate to be mayor at some future election, and therefore the mayor and the attorney general, the elected attorney general, can work together for the best interests of the, uh, the district. Certainly, that was a situation that I had as an appointed. I was, uh, it was in a unique situation when I was appointed because it was as an interim before the election. And what the statute said was that the mayor would appoint the attorney general and subject to confirmation by the city council. And then once confirmed, the attorney general could not be fired unless there was good cause shown, which meant that um, if I didn't uh, screw up and give any uh, justification for it, I was completely independent as the attorney general. But having been appointed by the mayor and being part of his administration, I attended all the mayor's senior staff meetings. I knew where the mayor wanted to take the city. This is Vincent Gray, who was really devoted to the best interests of the district. And we could work cooperatively Although I had, you know, my independence, if they were going to do something that was 
not within the legal bounds. I, I would uh, let him know about that. And in fact, for example, on the Harry Thomas that we mentioned, Harry Thomas was a political ally of Vince Gray. And I pursued that case. I gave advance notice to uh, the mayor, but and he was uh, fully supportive. But I, I knew that it wasn't going to be uh, good for the mayor, but it was good for the city. And, and we had no doubt that the attorney general represents the city of the District of Columbia, the entity of the city and the city government doesn't represent the mayor or any particular individual. Um, and so um, we were good on that, but we worked very cooperatively together. And I think an elected attorney general who is not perceived as a potential candidate for mayor can, again, work very care closely with the mayor and do the best for the city. Well, and, you know, we have the Washington Post uh, maybe to thank for that uh, animosity between the two of them because they push the idea that Carl Racine should run for mayor. But we which he never seen. did. And, uh, and never right, which he never did. I, I agree that it was a perception, and that perception was unfortunate. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Marilia. Do you have another question? I don't want to monopolize the Attorney General's time. Go That's ahead. quite all right. I think we already have. <laughs> Um, really My pleasure. Yeah, it's very kind. Appreciate your taking your Sunday night and spending it on um, on the show. Um, I wanted to ask you for your views on the prison system in D.C. I know there's problems with it and they haven't been addressed. Um, and I know that prison reform is an order. It's an order across the country um, because, as you know, we have the highest prison population, uh, highest um, um, percentage of, of, of blacks in the prison population, and we have the highest prison population, I think, worldwide, proportionally speaking. Um, and there is no reform. There is no rehab. It's just harsh prison life, and, and it doesn't produce anything but recidivism. Um, is there, or do you have a view on or what can be implemented or why it hasn't, hasn't yes. anything been and what can be, you know, in terms of the Norwegian sort of um, approach? To yeah, I, I, I do. And uh, in that connection, uh, as I mentioned, the Council for Court Excellence, which uh, I'm a member now of the executive committee, I had previously been the chair of the organization. It's an organization that's dedicated to improving justice in the District of Columbia. It's made up of uh, practitioners, both uh, prosecutors and defense lawyers, uh, criminal defense lawyers, civil uh, p uh, plaintiffs lawyers and defense lawyers, judges and lay people and people from the corporations in the uh, the city um, mm -hmm. and um, it has uh, formed a uh, task force to look at the uh, prison system and has issued a couple of reports which have talked about uh, improving uh, setting up creating a new uh, jail for the District of Columbia uh, minimizing the number of people who are incarcerated or who are incarcerated for long periods of time, focusing more on rehabilitation and putting people back in the community, uh, returning citizens, getting um, uh, housing for those people, getting employment for those people, having their civil rights uh, restored, and uh, basically reducing the number of people who are in our uh, jails or in our uh, prisons and 
working with them to educate them and rehabilitate them and set them on a, a right path. And, and one of the things that it, this uh, task force would do is to reduce the number of offenses that uh, require uh, jail time, uh, to do more uh, fines or community service, and basically reduce the number of uh, prisoners and reduce the time that people serve in uh, prison and obviously improve uh, the rehabilitation uh, process. You know, right now, this is another situation that we have a, a very a difficult situation in the District of Columbia because people in the District of Columbia who are convicted of D.C. crimes, that is, crimes that are in the D.C. code that are local felonies in the District of Columbia, are uh, tried in the local courts, but when they're convicted, they are sent to federal prisons, and they can be sent to federal prisons throughout the country. So if they're mm -hmm. sent to California, Colorado, or other places, uh, they're away from their families, they're away from their friends, they can't be visited, they can't communicate, and they don't get the kinds of services that the District of Columbia government uh, prescribes for uh, people who are uh, going to return to the district at some point. So they don't get the kind of um, skills, uh, employment skills, and then um, uh, training. So um, that's another problem that we have, and uh, I think we need to focus on uh, improving that system and making sure that people who have to be incarcerated for local crimes are, and if they need to be incarcerated, that are incarcerated in a facility that's uh, in the district or close to the district where they can be close to family and friends and uh, pastors from their churches mm -hmm. and can uh, get the kind of services that the district would like to give to those people so as returning citizens they can stay on the straight and narrow. Amen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's so important. And, you know, it really is the difference between trying to rehabilitate people and just housing them. Uh, it, it's really obscene that we send our people to Texas and you know, you, you, yeah, And you saw this in the confirmation hearing that you started with, you know, that yeah. the, the notion that uh, people just want... Um, you know, very long prison sentences. For example, the, the one, the case that uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson was uh, criticized for by uh, some Republicans like uh, Hawley and Cruz, it was a 17-year-old uh, boy who, um, you know, was in possession of materials that he shouldn't have been in possession of, and it is a crime, but the notion that you want to throw the book at him and have him serve a long time uh, serve with um, hardened criminals for a long period of time, get no services, no rehabilitation, and then bring them back to the community. That makes no sense. It, you know, it it serves a political purpose. They can bang the table and say we should throw the book at these guys and throw them away. And that's not the way to deal with a human being. And uh, the judge recognized that. She gave him three months in jail to recognize the seriousness of it. She put him on probation following that so that he could have a, uh, a life. Uh, 17 is just much too young to be uh, rejected by society and uh, thrown mm -hmm. away. 
Well, you know, I think that unfortunately, in some of the uh, the confirmation hearings, uh, we've seen the racism that's still, you know, inherent in the system. I don't know, uh, uh, Irv, if you've seen this this rant that that uh, the senator from. Uh, um, oh my God, uh, it, it escapes me now, but Lindsey. Yeah, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina has done this horrible commercial, you know, already about how, how you know, he wasn't in favor of her. And, and he's implied that she got the job based on her race instead of on her qualifications. It's just, it, 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 it's awful. So let me ask you. We still do you, have uh, racism that's a part of our system. There's no question about it. And we need to be vigilant to work against it. Well, and let me ask you, as someone who spent so much time as counsel uh, to to Congress, including the the uh, Judiciary Committee, have you ever seen a situation like we have today, where there's so much uh, partisanship and where we're so separated? Uh, and and you know, there's it seems to me that there's a lack of consciousness uh, of conscience in 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 Congress. Now it's all about getting reelected. And that's it. Do you think that? Yeah, well, that's I, I think it has deteriorated the the, the confirmation process. I make it clear. I, I I worked in the House. I, I never served in the with the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was on mm-hmm. that staff. I was involved with the Senate Intelligence Committee, but I, I was general counsel of the House, um, and. Um, but but I've observed obviously the confirmation process in the um, in the Senate Judiciary Committee over the years, and it has clearly deteriorated. You know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a very liberal justice, <coughs> was overwhelmingly confirmed. Even uh, Judge uh, Stephen Breyer, uh, whose seat uh, just uh, Judge Jackson will be taking, he, he was con- he, he was an aide to uh, Senator Kennedy. He was a very liberal. Um, professor from Harvard, he, he received overwhelming uh, support. Now, uh, the the Republicans, I mean, what they did with Merrick Garland is a disgrace, uh, not even giving him a hearing, and uh, mm-hmm. Garland is a very moderate and uh, middle-of-the-road uh, judge and eminently qualified for the Supreme Court, and uh, when McConnell uh, was the majority leader, they wouldn't give him a hearing. They, they now are saying uh, that... Uh, if they take the Senate and Biden has another appointment, even if it's not in the last year of his administration, they won't give a hearing to a Biden nominee. This is outrageous, and it's against the. It's contrary to the Constitution. It's contrary to our traditions and our history, and it's contrary to our our best interests. There needs to be a real overhaul here of the Senate Judiciary Committee and these and the Republicans in the Senate to recognize their responsibility to give a fair hearing to any qualified candidate that the president appoints. That's the way it has been during my lifetime and and before, uh, but um, it has not been over the last uh, several years. Well, uh, I I don't want to digress here, but I have to make a confession. I hope you don't think less of me for this, Marilia, but the first (laughs) political candidate I ever worked for was Spiro Agnew. (laughs) <laughs> I was 12 I was 12 years old 
I moved to Washington, D.C. I was 12 years old and a neighbor who was a Republican committee uh, person slapped a skimmer on my head and, and her son, who was, who was my best friend, Joey, and she took us to the polls to hand out literature for him. Uh, a, a sin that I've, I've tried to repent for. What, what, uh, what was he running for when you were working? He was running for governor. Of yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you worked you, in Maryland because if you were in the district, uh, you didn't have the opportunity to no, work for no, any I elected in, official in the district. Right. <laughs> when we moved to when we moved to D.C., we moved to Montgomery County. So, ah, so you were in Maryland. <coughs> that's, you were yeah, in Maryland. That's, yeah. yeah, I was in Maryland until I got out of high school, right. and uh, uh, which was a, too long ago to 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 remember actually. Well, let me tell you, I've got one last thing that I, I've got to talk to you about. Uh, uh, Mr. Attorney General, I read your op-ed in last Sunday's paper, and right. the thing that worries me about it, uh, I, I, I wonder why you think, since we've tried budget autonomy, we've tried legal autonomy, most recently D.C. Appleseed brought a suit uh, with other people, uh, casting on at all against you, the U.S. for representation. We keep on losing in the court. No, the, 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 the Congress doesn't seem to want to budge on any issue, on the, uh, on the National Guard or, or, or anything else. And, you know, the first guy I worked for or was when I worked for the Carter, Carter uh, re-election was uh, Bob Strauss, who has a law firm here in, in Washington. Right. Mr. Strauss is no longer with us, but I went to the law firm and they and they advised me that uh, the it was made very, very clear. It was made very, very clear. And Adams v. Clinton, that uh, our struggle is not a legal struggle. It's a political battle. So it seems that we have no standing in court and that the Republicans in Congress hate us. In fact, as you mentioned in the article uh, to United States representatives want to get rid of home rule. So what is it that makes you think that that it would be a better path to go after these changes than to go for statehood? Because what really bothers me about that argument is that I, I, I think it's a diversion. I think we, we've got one foot on the platform, one foot on the train. What do you yeah. think about it? Well, first of all, let me say that I'm a big supporter of statehood for the district. I think that uh, the district uh, deserves a statehood. It should have uh, that uh, right. People need to recognize that, um, you know, the, the people who are in the jurisdictions that make up the district, the district is made up of uh, uh, land that was first in Maryland and then in Virginia, and they, they brought it together to make the District of Columbia. And so before uh, the... Um, the District of Columbia was created, which was at the beginning of the 19th century, those people all had representation in Congress, and they voted for senators, and uh, or they, they voted for the House of Representatives, and uh, uh, the Senate at that time was uh, elected by the state legislatures. But um, since that time, obviously, uh, we, we don't have a vote here, uh, a voice in uh, the, the Congress. We don't have to elected senators, and we don't we don't even have a voting uh, representative. And if we were a state, we'd have two senators and a voting uh, member of Congress. And that clearly is the ideal, and I'm in favor of uh, that 
taking place. But the real, the political reality, so long as uh, there is a filibuster and the ability of the Republicans to uh, block that in the, in the Senate to block it, that's not going to happen uh, because they recognize that a overwhelming majority of the residents in the District of Columbia are vote Democratic, and there would likely be two Democratic senators. And that means that, uh, especially as it's really close, uh, you know, it's 50-50 now, and it's going to be close after the next election one way or the other. So two more uh, Democrats would really alter the balance, and the Republicans are not fools, and they recognize that. So they're not going to be supportive of uh, statehood. So without giving up on uh, statehood, the question is what you can do in the meantime before statehood becomes a reality. And that doesn't mean taking away from the efforts to get statehood, but in the meantime, uh, the, the home rule is very limited. And as I mentioned in the article, you know, a couple of things that you can't do uh, under our home rule. First of all, the city council does not have control over the budget. The budget, uh, even of all the taxes and revenues that are raised by the District of Columbia, where the city council... Uh, passes the legislation that says what the taxes will be and collects the taxes, those monies can't be spent without an appropriation from Congress because that's what the Home Rule Act says. I mean, there's some division in the courts about this and there's some confusion, but that's basically what the statute says. It also says, for example, as I point out, that um, the, uh, the city council can't change the powers of the U.S. attorney. Uh, which is a federal appointed uh, office. It's um, it's not controlled by the district, and there's no reason that the person who is the U.S. attorney in the district has to be terribly concerned about the citizens of the district because uh, he or she is appointed by the federal government, the president, appointed and confirmed by the Senate. So uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that there's a good reason why the city council can't make legislation that gives more authority to the attorney general and takes it away from the U.S. attorney that could be done so long as the Home Rule Act were changed. And my view is that, and when you say that you know there's no interest, the fact is that the Democratic-controlled House has passed a bill for statehood, but it is stalled in the Senate, and it's not likely to get further in the Senate. So... Uh, you know, there is interest in the Democratic Party. It's in the platform of the Democratic Party, and the president has supported it of statehood, but it's clearly not going to happen anytime soon. And while it's not happening, there can be uh, efforts to improve the amount of self-determination that uh, the district has and the control over its own destiny and the policies it sets if it had more authority under the Limited Home Rule Act that was passed as passed as part of a compromise back in 1973. We've had, you know, over 50 years since, or about 50 years since 1973, of the functioning of the District of Columbia government. And for the most part, and certainly over the last uh, couple of decades, the district has done extremely well and has demonstrated it has a, a uh, ability to govern itself and to uh, make policies that are sensible. So I, if I were within the District of Columbia government, uh, I would be urging Congress, um, give us statehood, but if you can't give us statehood, give us more power under the Home Rule Act 
so we can get the next stage, get to, as, as happened, for, for example, with the elected attorney general. That was another stage towards more determination by the citizens of the district. And there are more things that can be done in the Home Rule Act to uh, give more power to the mayor and the city council so that uh, the people in the District of Columbia, like people in all the states in the United States, are governing themselves and have full, fuller democracy. Well, again, my only problem, you know, I remember uh, the D.C. Voting Rights Act, which we spent millions of dollars in years working on past both houses of Congress, uh, but never became law. For our listeners who might not know what that is, it was uh, a great idea that come, came up with by a Republican congressman from Virginia named Tom Davis that we give one vote to you, Tom, one vote to the to the District of Columbia. And, you know, we don't have voting representation in the House, but we have this fierce advocate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's our delegate, and giving her a vote wouldn't have been given up very much, and the Republicans weren't even willing to do that. I mean, they were, they were, you're absolutely right. The the thing that, that, that keeps us from making this happen is two Democrats in the Senate. They 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 absolutely don't want that. But uh we'll have to disagree agree to disagree a little bit uh uh there, Mr. Attorney General. But yeah, I, I understand your sentiment. Uh Marilia, we're almost out of time. Do you want to ask the last question? Marilia, have we lost you? We may have lost her. Uh, Here I am. Uh, oh, okay. Do you want to ask the last question? Yes, yes, yes. I just wanted to ask a quick question about Davis-Bacon, and I'm sure that you will um, enlighten the audience as to exactly what Davis-Bacon is. My confusion is I see that you you were involved in a Davis-Bacon case involving city center. I thought Davis-Bacon applied only to federal contracts, and it is something I have a problem with because I, I think it just increases the, uh, the the budget outlay of the federal government because they, and the last time I knew about Davis-Bacon in detail, was that you have to pay, I think it's one and a half times the wages to union workers when they work on construction of, of um, uh, relating to federal contracts. Am I right? Well, uh, you know, I'm a little rusty on my Davis-Bacon recollections, but basically um, if it's a federal project, it has to be the the workers have to be paid at uh, union uh, levels, at the wages that the union has negotiated. And if it's not a federal contract, then um, it doesn't have to have uh, union wages. And with respect to the city center, the question was whether this was a federal project, and uh, mm. we got a ruling that it was not and that the city uh, did not have to pay those union wages, which would have uh, elevated the costs very significantly. So we went exactly. to court, and we were successful in saving funds for the district. That was exactly well, right. the question as to whether or not that applied, the federal applied to the city center. So thank you, and thank you for defending that well. Well, we're out of time, and thank you so much, Mr. Attorney General, for being yes. with us. I wanna, I wanna go on record is if you ever change your mind about uh, running for elected office, I volunteer to be your campaign manager. Right. I'm not, I'm not particularly good, but I work for free, which is a a, a big benefit. Well, the rate and, sounds you know, good to me. 
Yeah, I appreciate and, it. Thank, thank you guys very much. Yeah, thank you, so much. It, you know, it's amazing what they'll let you do if you want to do it for free. Uh, or right. you, can be, you can be a United States senator. But anyway, <laughs> we, we usually leave with a song dedicated to our guests. Since this is such a historic week with uh, Katani uh, J, I, I have such a hard time with her first Ketanji name. Katanji Brown Jackson. Katanji uh, Brown Jackson being uh, nominated. Uh, this goes out to two great public servants, uh, servants uh, Judge uh, Brown Jackson and uh, former Attorney General Irv Nathan. Here's Mahalia Jackson with We Shall Overcome. Well, that's great. Thanks. Thank you. See you next week. We shall overcome one day.